You're listening to the profession's greatest physical therapist, Their Past, Our Future podcast. We're your hosts, Ethan Mitchell and Joey Stewart, first-year physical therapy students at Angelo State University. This is the podcast that is made to inspire pre-PTs, SPTs, and current physical therapists to become the greatest versions of themselves, physically, mentally, academically, financially, and spiritually. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Their Past, Our Future podcast. Today, we are honored to have Greg Lehman on the show. He actually has a very interesting background, and he can tell you a little bit more, but he was actually a chiropractor for 15 years, right? Yeah. And then uh, you also got a master's in spine biomechanics? Yeah, before that, yeah. Before that, okay. And you you know, turned to the dark side and became a physical therapist after being a chiropractor. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I was both for a while. Like I was, I graduated in 2003 from chiro school and then I went back to physio school in 2008. And then you have a dual license, which isn't too uncommon. Maybe the order I did in. Yeah. Okay. Nice. But it's easy. Physio school is just two years in Canada. And I just right. worked pretty much full time, ish, as much full time right. as I ever work. So it wasn't that oh. bad. <laughs> Additionally, you also have some experience as a strength coach, working with a collegiate basketball and hockey team too. So yeah. you've really dipped your toes in the water in a bunch of different areas in the rehab and performance realm. Uh, yeah, but I mean, in Canada and at the time, I realized strength coach in the, in the States, like that's a full time job and you're there all the time, all the time with the athletes here's, it, it was, you know, two to three times a week, you know, for a few hours. So it wasn't like 40 hours a week in some division mm-hmm. one program screaming at people or whatever they do. They do a lot of screaming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So I want to ask you to start it off, Greg, what's something that you're excited for coming up? Uh, uh, I mean, in like a profession, (laughs) profession or anything life. Oh God. Yeah. Retiring. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) for sure. I'm not someone who like lives to work or anything like that. I think people set themselves up to fail if they're like, they have to love their job 100% of the time. Cause if your audience most is mostly like people are physios or physio students, if they are physical therapy students, if they feel like that, they're going to uh, burn out and uh, mm. not want to be in the profession. So mm. it, it's cool to not love everything all of the time. So, all right. Yeah. I mean, I like working. I like seeing patients and I like teaching, but I also like the idea of like not having to work and just golfing every day and skateboarding and, you know, going to the trampoline park, you know, and then just seeing a few patients every now and then. So, yeah. That's super super cool. Already three minutes in the show and you got your first golden nugget. (laughs) What other things outside of physio? Oh God. Yeah. That, that, what's that expression about, you know, you got to follow your passion or do something you love. If you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. Bullshit. Like you always hear people (laughs) who like turn their hobbies into a career and then they hate it. No, no way. Like the majority of people don't like I have a good friend who's an elevator repairman. He's awesome. He gets paid super well. It's not like he, like, it's just his job. You know, most people are like that. So stop like 
whatever the live your passion bullshit. That's bullshit. <laughs> Honestly, I hate that advice. And I get so happy when I see other people say that because it's like people don't want to admit it. Like you're going to have really shitty days as a physio and that's okay. Yeah. There's nothing right. wrong with being like, I want to go on vacation. Doesn't mean that you hate your job or that you suck at your job. Oh, anyways, yeah. sorry. I'm sure that's relieving to hear for a lot of people because you so. know, they, we always get that, um, that advice. It's like, Oh, you got to love it. And they're like, wow, I'm definitely not loving it today. And it's it, like you said, it's okay to not love it every day. So appreciate that. Yeah. You can make enough money and do the things that you love and find not hate yourself then good. You're winning. <laughs> For sure. So we kind of already touched on it a little bit, but just you know, talk a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to being here today. Um, so my, my undergrad was in kinesiology. I think that's maybe exercise science in the States, you know, it was like biomechanics and exercise physiology and stuff like that. Uh, but I was going to be a cop. I didn't go and I didn't really do well in high school. And then I started doing well in university and I just, a professor pretty much gave me a proposal, uh, like a grant to, to go to, for, um, to apply for, uh, what's called NSERC national science engineering research council. And then I applied for this grant and it was like $34,000 for two years. And like 25 years ago, that was a lot, it's a lot now, but it was a lot, really a lot back then. And he, I'm like, I'm not going to grad school. He's like, dude, just take the grant, apply. Your grades are good. And then you can decide and you can go wherever you want. So I never applied to grad school. I just went and then I started, um, then after that, I went to Cairo school for some reason. Uh, <laughs> that was it. I was just, I was just curious. I was just curious ab about, uh, you know, human function. And then I had to figure out a way to make a living out of it. Cause I didn't want to do a PhD. So Cairo seemed like a good idea, but I should have just went to physio school. That was <laughs> it. And the only reason I went to physio school, you're like, well, why would you go to physio school? The, the, the training in chiropractic college in Canada is amazing. It was actually mm -hmm in some ways, not better than the physio is more in depth than the physio. It's not, everything was covered, but it was a bit stupid. They would just try to beat the crap out of you for physio training was more like, this is what you need to know. We don't care if you get a 90, everyone get nineties, just get through the program and then you'll be amazing. So, but, but as a physio, you have way more doors open to you as a Cairo, it's pretty much private practice. That's it. As a yeah. physio, there's so many things you can do. So that's why I went to physio school. Yeah. That's great. And I want to learn more about your way of thinking, your paradigm with the movement optimism, because that's something that really was encouraging to me, you know, and I'll just let you take it off from there. Yeah. So it's more of a reaction. Like if you, if you go to like some physical therapy student group on like Facebook or something, Mm -hmm. And you put a, a, a video of someone running, let's say from the behind the side and they say, guess where they have injuries. And then <laughs> you'll just see people saying shit about human function and calling normal variation faulty. And they think that they can see things like when a muscle turns on, like, oh, the soleus is obviously delayed here because the first ray doesn't rotate at the proper time and the glutes aren't firing and the knees caving in one degree. So there's this idea like that's just so negative, like it, there's no hope in the human's ability to adapt or our resiliency. And so the concept of movement optimism is like, stop like knocking people down for things that aren't even faulty, right? You're recalling normal variation. Like there's a whole thing, a faulty movement pattern. Somehow this gets published 
you know, by researchers like Irene Davis and big papers. And I'm like, you've never established that this is a faulty movement pattern. You're just calling it a faulty movement pattern. And now you're making people feel like they're this fragile stack of blocks as this no robustness or resiliency. And I'm like, this bullshit. And this isn't a pain science thing. The psychosocial aspects of pain are really important, but this is really a biomechanical thing. Like if we look at biomechanics differently, then we would see how amazing and robust people are. Right. So that's all it is. It's like, yeah. we've, we've said things were faulty and they're not, they're just human. Yeah. And something I've been learning a little bit more is it seems that like some of these beliefs about movement patterns being faulty really are derived maybe from like prospective studies where they see like, Oh, a relationship with adduction and internal rotation with patellofemoral pain. Right. And from learning a little bit more from just listening to podcasts and looking at research, it seems like it's much harder to find. Wait, wait a second. It's much harder you to mean, find prospective research yeah. on that. Yeah. Right. You mean okay. the cross-sectional studies? Yeah. 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 So it's odd. Like, so th- this is the weird thing people. So a paper just came out by Nick Saracini. He, he does, he's a low back pain researcher and he, he, he found that people with low back pain, when they lifted, they had less spine, less spine flexion, right? They weren't lifting with more spine flexion. So often people will say more spine flexion is associated with pain. And he's like, no, it's not, you know, like, it, it, and then, and then people criticize it and say, well, maybe they're responding to the pain and not bending their spine as much, right? It, because it hurts. That, that's absolutely true. That's all, absolutely possible. But at the same time, these same people will then look at cross-sectional studies, like you said, that show, oh, when people have kneecap pain, they have more hip adduction or more hip internal rotation or more pronation or something like that. And they'll say, aha, this, cross-section, this cross-sectional, cross-sectional study supports the idea that these movement patterns are causing the injury. And there's, there's no reason to think that because it could absolutely be what you would call it's purely it's, it's caused by pain. That's possible. Uh, two, it's just not relevant at all. Or three, this is, this is weird. It's where um, the movement pattern is, is an epiphenomenon, meaning like both the thing causing the pain. So, so this is this, something that causes pain is also causing something else, Right which also causes this third thing, which would be the hip adduction. But it's not like the hip adduction is causing the pain problem. It's just there. It's just associated. So you're absolutely right. But here's the thing. If you find a paper where there's more hip adduction and IT band pain, you can then go find a paper where there's less. Right? But what we do as humans, and I do it too, is you just see the thing that wants to support what you're talking about. And then you you just think... Aha. And with no one, no one has ever done. And I've written this for decades now uh, and given lots of talks is so even if hip adduction is associated with the pain problem, what people haven't really shown or, or it could be breaking forces in a runner or something like that. People haven't shown is that you have to change that variable to get someone out of pain. That's what people haven't established. Right. And so there'll be plenty of studies where someone gets a strength and conditioning program for running they have less knee pain, you go and measure their kinematics or how they move, and there's no change in that variable. So even though that variable was associated with pain, it wasn't a mediator, it didn't, wasn't something that needed to be corrected. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Boom. 
I think one thing a lot of people chase too, and is they or forget about more so is um, the old phrase correlation does not equal causation. I feel like a lot of people nowadays, you know, because we want to see things in such a black and white matter, kind of start putting things into those boxes. It kind of goes against that. Um, so just if you're having a conversation about something like this, you know, how do you try and dispel that? So what I would do is like I, someone who corrects, who changes how, the way people move, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, I absolutely believe that you're helping these people, right? Uh, and sometimes changing how someone moves is totally reasonable. I, I, I do it all the time and I teach it. But what I don't, what I, what I would, like, so this would be against, if I was debating with Shirley Sarman, I mean, like, I know you're helping people, uh, but I don't think you're changing them to an ideal movement pattern. Well, all you're doing is you're finding a movement that hurts and you say, hey, maybe we don't do that for a little bit, <laughs> right? And then they feel better. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that's really simple. And then that's it. So I could still take a Shirley Sarman course and learn from her because I believe sometimes we should be able to move all kinds of different ways. So someone has pain, maybe move differently. So maybe you squat with your knee in more valgus or more varus or something like that. So if I'm debating people in those areas and arguing with them, I'm, I'm not saying like clinically what they're doing sucks. What I would have them question is like, do they really think they know the mechanism here? Does, does that make sense? Or like another way to look at it uh, would be often these papers where they're trying to change movement patterns. They're just really robust and comprehensive strength and conditioning programs. And so they confuse uh, because they get clinical success. They think it's because someone moved differently and it could just because you just did a really good strength and conditioning program. And that often helps with pain. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was actually a recent paper that just came out. uh, I think a few months ago, I don't remember the author's name, but it was, looking at patellofemoral pain and doing one group would do knee extensor plus external rotation and adduction yeah. strength. I know that paper. And then uh, the other group would do ad, uh, knee extensor plus adduction and internal rotation strength. Yep. And it turned out that both the groups improved the same with pain and uh, the outcome measures. And, you know, they also looked at the way they moved and, the way they moved didn't change at all with some analysis. So that was also another interesting paper. Yeah. Those are fun. These are called mediation analysis. We're trying to figure out what's the mediator. Like, so we know exercise can help with pain, but the question would be, is it because someone got stronger? Is it because you changed tendon stiffness? Is it because you built, you know, hypertrophy? Did you um, catalyze habituation? Is it descending modulation of noxious? You know, all these potential things, mm. right? And so right now, often what people do is they, if they have their favorite thing, which is strength, they'd be like, oh, you got, you got out of pain because you got stronger. And there's academic, there's researchers saying these things and they shouldn't, <laughs> they should know better. They're often the worst people, right? Cause they have, I don't know, sales pitch that must be uh, repeated all the time. So uh, it, it's always neat. So that the paper you're citing, uh, I think it was like a Brazilian group. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, w- w- what's interesting about them is like, if you, if you hadn't have had that control group and they just did hip abductor work, 
right? And that helped people get better along with quad strength. People were like, oh, obviously it's because you're changing knee valgus or you're strengthening the hip rotators and that's changing the knee moment or something like that. But when you throw in a, a control group like that, it should hopefully will start making people think, right? That we don't really know the mechanism. You see this in the gait retraining literature, which is really disappointing sometimes with the researchers. They'll, you'll have a group, they do gait retraining. It's usually an N of 10. It might be, hey, run softer, run with more steps, uh, run, push your knees out a little bit, you know, don't go into valgus and, and then people get better. And they'll be like, aha, it's because we changed the amount of hip adduction. Well, no, that did change, but you can't say that's what mediated, you know, the clinical success. And you'll see these in clinical practice guidelines. And then, and then those same papers, which have no control group, don't really test what they say they're testing. They then get cited and they're like, well, this is a faulty movement pattern because of this research. <laughs> it's really bad. It's really pernicious. And, and people are like, well, that's why I don't blame any clinician out there. I blame the universities and the researchers because they're, they're just as bad as having this faulty logic. Yeah, I, I totally see that. So now more nuggets. I'm just dropping them on people's heads now. That's a bit aggressive. <laughs> Yes, that's perfect. And I do want to dive in a little bit on some of the movements that do get demonized, like knee valgus. And maybe we could even get into pronation too, which I still need to learn a lot more about. But oh, don't, don't waste you, your time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. I know knee valgus is seen as something like we should always, if someone goes into knee valgus while, you know, especially single leg, that's definitely something that says like, oh, we definitely need to change that. And I think, you know, my personal understanding for now is it probably depends is, you know, maybe it's because they don't have enough motor control. Maybe that's something that we can work on, but I'll let you take it from here on, you know, when, if, or if we should even change valgus or try to, I don't even know if we can change it. So it, it's weird. I've, I've changed a bit through the years. You know, when I worked with the, I worked with the women's hockey team and with the strength and conditioning we did, we essentially did like the FIFA 11, which is the neuromuscular control program. And I would try to change knee valgus during like single leg bounding and single leg uh, hops and jumps and stuff like that. I don't know if I ever did. Uh, so I often think the cue to try to change knee valgus helps create a better exercise because it will train your hips more. So I will, will sometimes do it because I, I do believe that people should have the ability to squat in valgus and out of valgus. So I, I often do both. I have runners where I'm like, do the squat, let your knee cave in, then push it out, drop your hips, then lift your hips. So I train all of that stuff. I just believe in like creating a robust system. But in general, I actually don't believe that knee valgus or hip adduction, internal rotation and knee abduction is a risk factor for any injury. I don't think it's a mediating variable. And there's lots of research now that supports that a lot that has come out. It all started with Tim Hewitt's work in 2005. But again, when I would read that, then I was like, there was nine injuries. That was it. Nine injuries, nine freaking injuries. <laughs> and when we make this strong conclusion that, you know, when someone does a drop jump, if their knee caves in a little bit, they're more likely to get an ACL tear. And then all, all kinds of research since then, crosshag, Zebus, these other research would be like researchers would show, no, you can't tell who will get the ACL tear. And 
These neuromuscular training programs, although they're designed to change knee valves, they often don't. Sometimes they change the moment a little bit, but they don't need to. That's not how they're working. So, yeah. I, I, so I don't care anymore. But, but it's, if it hurts and someone does a squat and they go into knee valgus and it feels better if they don't go into knee valgus, sure, let's do that. It's simple symptom modification. But other than that, who cares? And same thing with pronation, whatever. If it hurts when you pronate a lot, maybe don't. Tape the foot, try an orthotic or whatever. That's it. That's all you need to know. We make it way too complicated. I don't know if that answers any of that. No, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And I kind of like how you brought up like, you know, since you just basically said like, you can't predict it, you know, because I mean, you can have them do all the neuromuscular training in the world, but when you put them in their activity, I mean, it's a whole different ballpark, whole different environment, whole different pace. What have you. So, yeah. So like, look at it this way. If you, if you stay in that motor control world, like someone who cuts with a lot of hip adduction, okay. Or what, or knee abduction. That's what people call valgus, but there's not really a lot of knee abduction. It just looks like there's knee abduction. Um, and their knees bent. And they'll do that thousands and thousands of times, right? That's a stable pattern. There's nothing unstable about that. If it was unstable, then they would go into that and they would buckle, doing that a thousand times. But then what ends up happening is at some point in time, when they're running or cutting, they don't do their normal pattern. It changes slightly. They probably go into valgus with a straight knee and boom, they have an ACL tear. So, but that would happen with someone who doesn't go into valgus when they're running or cutting as well. They'll have some weird pattern that they don't normally do. And it's that their, their pattern isn't stable at, in that situation. And boom, they tear their ACL. And so the, one of the arguments here is we wanna create the best system for us to keep a stable pattern stable under all conditions. And that's why you're seeing the work of like Dustin Grooms and Jason Abadason. I never say his name, right. Where it's like, you got to train the brain as well. And I don't mean pain science. I mean, like you, you should be able to cut under like decision-making, right. And reacting to lights and sounds and people moving around you and what you're thinking in your brain and all these things. So that, that, that's how you make a stable pattern. So you have a, a pattern that goes into lots of algas, but you can do it all the time if it's stable. I don't know if that, but that's ringing any bells or making sense at all. Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing that I have kind of questioned a little bit about kind of the newer research, I personally, I'll be honest, I haven't dove too far into it, but you know, about the newer research that, you know, valgus isn't a problem. I'm curious on like what the knee flexion angles are in some of those studies. Um, when they get like when the ACL is torn. Right. When it's yeah. Or like, so it's, a, yeah, it's when less than 25. It's almost right. like a pretty straight knee. So yeah. it's true. Dynamic knee valgus can tear the ACL if the knee is pretty straight. So there's cadaver studies and then there's studies where there's video of people, right? So, but that, that's not a normal movement pattern. That's the fluke. That's the glitch in the system where someone gets forced into that and boom, the ACL goes. So how do you keep someone from having that glitch and getting forced into that weird pattern? That's, that, that's the Holy grail right now, right? People thought it was like avoiding something that looked like the injury mechanism, but that's, you don't need to avoid that. 
you need to avoid the actual injury mechanism. But people don't do that regularly. They do that one in a million and then they're it's cooked or whatever. I don't know what that stat is. <laughs> don't quote me on that. <laughs> and I do have more questions on, you know, different movements that seem to be, I don't know if demonized is the right word, but maybe like more people are more cautious about. So like spine flexion, it seems like people are starting to catch on that, you know, <laughs> flexing your spine isn't bad. Yeah. Um, we've gone back to 1975. Yeah. Right. So it's, we've, yeah, it's been saying for a long time until like, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about how, you know, some of the literature about like pig spines under like extremely high loads, dead, dead pig spines under extremely high flexion loads are kind of where these narratives about flexing is bad. Um, but that's part of the case. Yeah. That's Sorry, part of the yeah. case. Yeah. Thanks. I'm curious about what about the, a twisting component to spinal flexion? And if that is something that maybe puts your spine more at risk for injury. So here, here, here's the thing. So it's the twisting is the same as the flexion. It, like the research kind of, you can segregate it into three areas. One would be these like cadaver based mo- tissue based models where the, the, and the spine flexion stuff was interesting because it wasn't under heavy loads. Like oh. it was under low loads, highly, highly repetitive. Mm. So it was like, that's why there's thousands and thousands of bending cycles under low loads. And then the disc would herniate under high loads like lots of compression and bending, you tend to have like a vertebral body fracture is what happens. Mm. And then, then people started the, the robot machines that move the cadaver spines around, they would add twisting and bending and same idea. It's just more, be- more movement is more stress someplace. And then, yeah, the cadaver is more likely to fail, but the criticism is the same. And that's like these these jigs, they're moving all day, a dead pig spine or a cow spine or a human spine, if they can get them. And these aren't things that anyone does, right? It's not just that it's dead and it has no ability to adapt. It's that like it's hundreds and thousands of times in a day, right? That, that the motions occur. So no one does these things. So that, that, that's, that's the cadaver base. And then, and then you'll have like, um, biomechanical modeling base where very smart biomechanists and engineers create a model of the spine. Like they measure how the person moves and all this stuff. And then, then they try to guess with their model, what the tissues are feeling. It's an estimate. And so it, I bet if you put them all in a room, they, well, they do this and they disagree. What's the best model? They, you know, they, you're making guesses. And so they'll make the guess. Oh, look, if you twist and lift, there's more stress on the annulus or something. Mm-hmm. So they view that the annulus, like a bridge, you know, if you're a, a bridge builder, you want to measure the stresses on that bridge. Cause you're going to find out where it's going to fail over time. Yeah. So if you treat the spine like a bridge, then these models might be relevant. The problem is how do you guys get bigger and stronger? What do you do? Pick up heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, if you wanted to make a bridge bigger and stronger, would you put heavier stuff on it? <laughs> No. Right. So we aren't bridges. Yeah. That, that's, that's the knock right there. And then and, well, and the other, number three. <laughs> yeah. And then the third is like the, the stuff that's re- all this research is hard to do, but those are easier is the epidemiological studies where you would want to follow people for decades 
for years. And then one group lifts and twists a lot. The other group lifts a lot, but doesn't twist. You would have to see how much does twisting like increase your risk. And then this is, these are researchers like Peter Conan, who's a spine biomechanist, um, epidemiologist. And he thought it was all about the loads on the spine. Now he's like, yeah, lifting a lot, not just twisting, but, you know, lifting awkwardly or a lot, that'll increase your risk. But it's like 3.5%, <laughs> right? So it's like all, millions, like all the money that's gone into biomechanical epidemiological back pain literature. I'm like, has this done anything? Yeah. yeah. If you ever doubt your profession, you should maybe get into that world of like low back pain prevention. <laughs> then you think... <laughs> And you say, have I really made a difference over the years? <laughs> I hope not. I hope no research is hearing that, but it's true. Like we don't know jack shit. Yeah. So, yeah. so sure. Twisting might slightly increase the risk based on all of those three models, but I don't think you could mitigate it. And then, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so just between that example, the knee valgus example, I mean, we can go on and on about all the movements that we have to destigmatize somehow. Um, but how do you have that conversation with your patient who has been told these things and um, is now afraid to move because of all these things they've been told or that, that they believe? So sometimes this is actually pretty tough. I mean, some option is uh, you don't really focus on it. And, and you acknowledge what they've been told before and you ask if you can, there's a, say that there's a bunch of other things that we can focus on that you haven't done. So maybe it's worth it to do that because you've tried the other approaches of trying to move it. And, and I would even say, I bet it's probably was frustrating and really hard. And then you blame yourself because you can't stop your feet from turning in and all of these things. So, you know, there's another way to look at this. You could cite some research or a blog or something like that. And then say, how, but how about we work on all of these other things? So you don't, you're not thinking, you're not telling the person they're wrong, you know, or getting into like a, a, a debate with their old therapist. You're saying, let's do some other things. Are you open to that? Um, the other way is like, you go like the uh, ignorant, arrogant approach or the arrogant ignorance. I'm not sure where you're like, nope. That, that stuff's been really debunked. If you dive into the literature, which I've done, that's what you say, uh, then you know that there's, this really doesn't matter. And you already know that because you've already tried all that stuff. So let's do something else. So do it, that would be your, depends on your personality style and who you're talking to. And you're like, uh, and if, if, I mean, no one really knows the answer here. Uh, and if they do tell you, then they don't know enough that, that they don't know what they don't know. See, that's like, you're arrogant, but you acknowledge your ignorance. Uh, so th those are like two ways to, to do it. You know, the first one's probably easier <laughs> or, or we'll help more people, but sometimes the second one's fun. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big fan of the second one. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that was great. Like, ah, fuck that. They all say that to some patients just because I can feel like that they don't really buy into it. And they're like so happy to hear it. And you can, and I always say, I get why the person told you that. Everyone's taught that in school, but it's just kind of like a dinosaur. It's just inertia. It's just hard to move that big beast. It's, and it just takes time. So, like, I get why the therapist said it, but we don't really think that way anymore. That's, yeah. And that's sort of the arrogant style, too. We're like, oh, they'll, they'll get there eventually. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely something to emphasize too with them. I mean, just the times are always changing. You know, what we believe yeah. 5, 10, 15 years ago is not going to be the same 5, 10, 15 years from now. Um, but yeah, and I feel like a lot of that too, just kind of going about debunking it with them really depends on their personality too, which yeah. I think is the tougher part because how do you do that in such a short time frame of meeting them? You yeah, know? that's a good point. I so, think like... Oh, go ahead, Greg. Just like say it's pronation or knee valgus. You were like, look how many years you ran or squatted or walked with pronation like this. It's always what you've done. You can totally do it. There's a way better explanation for your pain. So if you really listen to them, really understand what's going on and you give them a better narrative, then they'll buy into it as well. Right. So say I'm, it's great that you try doing all these things. Now we don't have to, but there's so many other things that you can work on to help with your knee pain. So that's the idea. Or you like, look like they might say they're squatting and they feel better with knee valgus or they have friends who squat with knee valgus. Like, say, what does that tell you about your knee? You know what I mean? Like you have friends that do this. They're fine. You used, you've done this. Like, does your knee hurt when you go to valgus? No. Okay. Then why are we talking about it? (laughs) Someone told you to, well, don't, (laughs) don't listen to them. So then that's the idea of like confronting them with something they already know. Yeah. yeah. they like, That's oh, perfect. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And helping them like come to the conclusion on their own. I think yeah. it's something that really helps them like change that belief. So, yeah. 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 And then, and then that's why it's good that there's so many blogs out there refer to say, it's not just me saying it, you know, that's why I wrote my workbook and all that stuff. So here's some other dude saying it or people like, uh, Todd Hargrove or Paul Ingram or anyone who's writing with this new message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Greg, we want to hear a little bit more about your course that you teach reconciling biomechanics. Can you give us a, a nutshell of what that course is about? So the, uh, you know what we just did right there really quickly, the last two hours is just doing that stuff is giving new like key messages for pain and injury. And then throughout the course, we practice that stuff. So instead of, you know, like we do an example where instead of telling someone they have SI joint pain because they have an upslip and a torsion and it has to be put in the right place, we'll do breakouts and people share different ideas of how they like, what's a more optimistic way to explain low back pain. So it's all about like, it's, it's not about minimizing biomechanics. It's just another way to look at biomechanics and how it fits with this world of pain science or the biopsychosocial. I'm never about saying biomechanics are irrelevant. I kind of think that the tissue matters all of the time. It's just an, another way to look at it. All right. So that, that's the idea of the course is to like, it's not to blow people out of the water with lots of research. Anyone can write a course like that. I'd love that stuff. That'd be so boring. It's, it's taking what people already do and then just massaging it into this like movement optimism way. You don't have to change too much. It's just another way that you can add things is the idea. Yeah. It's there's that. I, I love how you said like, don't dispel the biomechanics too. Cause of course that's important. Um, but yeah, I think it's even more important just trying to find the happy marriage between the sciencey side and the people side for lack of a better term. Um, how can we relay that, utilize that, apply that for the best possible outcome? Yeah, that's it. It's just finding like, 
common threads between different therapies? How can you have so many different people in our profession who seem really different in their philosophies? How can they all be helping people? So that the gist of my one sort of theme of my course is what's similar between these different people. And if we can figure out what's similar and what the common threads or the mediators are, then we create our own like treatment philosophy. You know, that, that, cause we, everyone, I swear, makes it way too complicated. I think you just have a lot of smart people in the profession. They like that complexity and you don't need it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And to finish out the show, we ask all our guests one question. What's your definition of a great physical therapist? Oh, um, to, to me, it's just someone, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm for, I would say someone who gives their patients what their patients want, which mm -hmm. is kind of, it sounds a bit simplistic, but you need to listen to your patients and figure out what they want. I know I've failed a lot because I've sort of forced my own narrative, right? It's, it's figuring out what your patient wants and help and helping them get there in a, in a way that they want to. Yeah. That's it. And to me, it always ends up being like get, getting people's lives back. Sure. Yeah. Now, now I got one more question on top of that. What's your definition of a great movement optimist? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think I just invented the term and, I, and now I, I have to think more about it. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's it. What it is, it's just someone that recognizes the resiliency of humans, and mm -hmm. and ideally, we get better at building that resiliency. That's it. And uh, I know there's lots of things that I could develop in my skill set. I default to the same things all the time, and maybe I would be better at it if I had you know um, more ways to achieve the same result. Cause not everything will work for everyone. Right. Like I was, I don't do jack shit when it comes to like breathing and meditation, all that calm shit down stuff that way. And so maybe <laughs> I know it sounds so belittling, but even the way I say it, <laughs> and I've, been, I've actually been given this example for three years and I keep saying, maybe I'll learn how, but I haven't yet. I know how to breathe through my fucking face. Like <laughs> that's all I know, but you, you know what I mean? Like right. that, that's a, yeah, that, that, that's a move not the resiliency and robustness. And then that, how do we build that? I love that. Absolutely. Well, Greg, if anyone wants to get into some more, uh, deep movement optimist discussions with you, where's a good place, Twitter, Instagram, or yeah, uh, just Twitter, Tw Instagram's for like trampoline and skateboarding. <laughs> <laughs> I put some propaganda on there, but Twitter, Twitter's the best. Just Greg. Okay. Layman. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. And uh, we'll link that in the show notes. It was great having you on the show. All right. Thanks, guys. What a wild ride with an awesome character, Greg Lehman, everybody. Make sure to go check him out and follow him on Twitter. And if you found this episode valuable, I just want to ask you to share it with just one friend. That would mean a lot to help get our show out to another audience and just help a more positive message and i just want to thank you thanks for listening have a great day